Hi, folks. Be sure to visit my webpage at dr-history.com for over 440 true stories of the Old West. Also, now available on Amazon, my first book, a historical fiction based on true events entitled Coal Miner to Cowboy. The story of a young man born in England in 1850. He wants to be a cowboy and makes his way to America, travels from New Orleans to Independence on a steamboat, hires on as a teamster to Santa Fe, then on a cattle drive to Bozeman, Montana. He also rides shotgun on a stagecoach. He travels with a wagon train, and on his two-year journey, he meets some famous people and keeps a journal of his adventures. The book contains a lot of the true stories from my podcast and is now available on Amazon. Visit my webpage for a link to Amazon for the book, Coal Miner to Cowboy. And right now, uh, we have most of his entourage seated with comfy, comfy chairs, and they've rolled out the red carpet for him. And here he is, fresh from a quite a few speeches last weekend, Dr. History. Good morning, Zeb. How are you? I'm doing good. What are we going to talk about this morning? Okay, we started last week. To, we're, we're talking mainly the subject is the Europeans that came over here to see what it was like, and then they wrote back to the people in England and France and Germany and all uh, about what it's like here, and which caused a lot of them to actually immigrate over uh, to help settle the West. Really? And a lot of what they wrote also uh, inspired the Easterners to head West. So not just the Europeans, but their writings were used... Uh, quite a bit by even the ones that were already here. You just touched on a subject that I was going to ask you about. The Easterners, you just referred to them as, uh-huh. along the East Coast. Those that never listened to the words, go West, young man. Right. What was the attitude of those people, that uh, the West was just nothing but a bunch of wild renegades and they I, were above it, or what? Not necessarily they were above it. I think they. I think it was maybe fear. Really? Of heading out to where they didn't know what was out here. They, you know, they heard stories about the Indians. They heard about the, the deserts and the difficulty, the snow. And so I think these people that wrote about it, uh, told what it was like to where it enticed a lot of people to head out on the Oregon Trail. But you will admit that there were probably a lot of people that uh, looked at uh, the Daniel Boones and the Davy Crockett's and the uh, Kit Carsons and everything as, uh, oh, those wild uh, renegades. Yeah. And, and then there was, a, I think there was a certain amount of fear, Yeah, you know. So, but, you know, last week I started telling you about Sir Richard Burton. Yeah. The, not Elizabeth's no, husband. Not. No, Sir Richard Burton. He came over uh, and he wanted to see what things were like. And I mentioned last week that you know he had uh, a pretty good arsenal of guns. And yeah. and then he um, discussed the art of Western gunslinging. You remember he talked. He was to, the guy who was afraid that he was going to shoot himself in the foot. <laughs> he was, and uh, he talked about uh, how that works and. Uh, he also confessed that he was hoping that the military officers would enjoy having a real genuine British soldier to help them out with the problems with the Indians. Didn't he remember and realize that we as patriots kicked his butt? <laughs> Continuing on. 
So here he is. He's getting ready to head out. Okay. So by the time all of his gear was assembled, Burton had found that the local mint juleps uh, were quite delicious and that he was reluctant to leave St. Joseph because he quite enjoyed that drink. Well, he finally boarded a westbound stagecoach and made acquaintance with the, quote, traditionally familiar feature of the chuck holes in the roads. Really? <laughs> he says, quote, which render traveling over the prairies at times a sore task. <laughs> to me, it would seem like these English or these Brits would be just so refined that they wouldn't want to go. And some were. Yeah. Very, uh, what you call, a little bit uppity up. Yeah. So, anyway, for potential immigrants, he carefully worked up a mile-by-mile, day-by-day itinerary from St. Joseph to Salt Lake City. He interrogated fellow passengers and calculated that a wagon party of six would require, among other things, two yoke of oxen, a milk cow, 24 pounds of raisins, and a bushel of dried beans, the cost of that being about exactly $490.98. Go back to the raisins. I'm confused. Why? 24 pounds of raisins. Why were they so important? I don't know. That was his idea of necessities. 24 pounds of raisins. I can think of a lot of things, not raisins. (laughs) I I agree. So Burton Stagecoach traveled along the Platte River, one of several routes then under consideration for a transcontinental railroad. And since Sir Richard was aware that British capitalists were interested in investing in the railroad, he pointed out that the Valley of the Platte, quote, offer a route scarcely to be surpassed for natural gradients. In other words, he he actually could see that, okay, this could be a very good route for a transcontinental railroad. Really? Sure. And, and of course, that's what happened. You know, yeah. it did do that, yeah. the transcontinental. So, you know, his appraisal of the route was right on the mark. Well, Sir Richard reached the great uh, Salt Lake City and quickly discovered that the town was Seriously lacking in several aspects. Oh, in his opinion. In his opinion. His hotel was short on servants (laughs) and boot polish. (laughs) And since the Mormons insisted on public temperance, he found no saloons and no mint juleps. Oh, how did he live? I don't know. And he says, quote, bottles and decanters were not forthcoming. <laughs> I see. So he was not used to having a dry society. And without servants. I, oh, not, yes, not sir, very important, yes. Yes. So Sir Richard left Salt Lake City. Uh, he never got a chance to fight Indians. He described the great Sioux Nation as, quote, one of the most warlike and numerous in the U.S. territory, unsurpassed in single combat on horseback, They are not, however, formidable warriors. He says they never attack when they should, and invariably they attack when they should not. What kind of an entourage did he have with him? Oh, you know, he had quite a few. Nothing like some of the bigger ones. I mean, you said he packed up and left Salt Lake City. I mean, in my mind's eye, I've got like a wagon train. Yeah. I mean, he had, you know, probably eight or ten wagons, his uh, guide, his... uh, cook, his servants, and whatever else, you know. Um, Burton was actually fascinated by scalping. Which what? He, scalping. You're not talking about stealing scalping. tickets or anything. Scalping. Oh, my goodness. And he called that a solemn rite, 
and after questioning various soldiers and settlers about the practice, he gave his uh, readers a very uh, accurate description of this operation. I'm so glad you're doing I this. I don't know if I want to do that. I'm questioning it. Yeah, so I'm not going to go through the... Uh, the, there's a whole paragraph here on the art of scalping. Let's leave we'll it just, where it was. Bless you, my child. Yes, we're done okay. with that. Anyway, Sir Richard uh, could not resist passing some remarks on the quality of Western justice. Uh-huh. As the Westerners themselves admitted their, quote, jerry-built version of the law and order left something to be desired. I see. We're talking, you know, about, uh, you know, the... Uh, the justice that was carried out sometimes quickly and sometimes maybe not necessarily the way it should have been. Yeah. He talked about uh, a guy that uh, in full view of everybody shot at a guy to death in, in a town and they went to trial and he was acquitted because he happened to be a very popular person in town oh. and the judge approved of the verdict that he was not guilty. I see. And that happened uh, on occasion. Uh-huh. So with his kind of like what's going on today. (laughs) Yes. With his curiosity satisfied, Sir Richard returned to England in December of 1860. And there his book was published in 1861. And meanwhile, he got married and settled down, and he pretty much stayed in England, and but would occasionally still come back because he had property here in America. I was going to ask you, he decided all of a sudden to go back to England, yeah. and you said he went back in December. How long did it take to get his entourage back from, where were they in Wyoming, you said? Or? Well, uh, they probably ended up clear back east again. To, no, I know, but oh yes, from where? Right, from Salt Lake oh, to my goodness, uh, part of the west. So I wonder how long that took from going from the west all the way back all the to way England. Back. You know, it's got to have been two or three months. That's anyway. what I thought. Too. Yeah, yeah. Well, of course, in May of 1869, the Transcontinental Railroad was complete, uh, which ushered in the age of Western tourism. Now, you don't think of it as tourism, do you, really? Don't Back you think then? Of, yeah. No. Don't you think of it as just getting people out here? Yeah. So, anyway, with overland travel now reasonably swift, the prosperous, the rich, in other words, British, responded in droves streaming into the great Western frontier. They generally agreed that the new sleeping cars were actually better uh, than their coaches back home in England. Really? So they really were quite impressed with these sleeper cars uh, that took them out. Okay. There's a guy named, uh, he was kind of a sportsman named Charles Messeter. He complained that his hotel in Cheyenne, quote, contained only one room for men in which there were 27 beds, each meant for two. Two people per bed. Not in my world. <laughs> he continues, you never knew who you were going to have as a companion. Very frequently, a half-drunken wagon driver who, before he got into bed, deposited a loaded revolver under the pillow. <laughs> nope. <laughs> I think I'd have paid a little more just to have a bed to myself. Oh, you got it. I, yeah. You ever heard of a sleeping bag? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. On the floor. Yeah. Well. The British discovered Colorado and started colonizing uh, America all over again. In the last three decades of the century, there were so many Britons arriving in Colorado as settlers and investors, not to mention those who came as hunters and tourists, that the state was sometimes called England beyond the Missouri. Really? Now, I'd never 
for Colorado. <laughs> yeah. I didn't yeah, know that. Yeah. So the most obvious of Colorado's appeals to the English was its really good climate. Mm-hmm. It's Rocky Mountain air declared the noted British traveler, William Grome. He said, quote, was dry and sparkling as perhaps none other on the globe. It seemed to be composed not of one-fifth, but of five-fifths of oxygen. You feel that it is air which has never been breathed before. And he goes on and talks about, he said, uh, this champagne atmosphere attracts many English sufferers from lung ailments and cured more than a few. In fact, the mortality rate was so low that Englishman Charles Russell asked a Coloradoan whether anyone died thereabouts. And (laughs) I like this. The local guy said, very few. He said, they had to shoot a man a little farther west to give their cemetery a start. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you you brought up something right there. The language and the verbiage of those times was so... Formal. Articulate. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, very formal. They used a lot of the dictionary that we seem to have forgotten. Yeah. And even even the Westerners, you know, yeah. as we've talked. But yeah. the British were very formal British. Uh, Queen's English, they called it. So, yeah. So Colorado Springs, described by an, by an Englishman as, quote, a charming big village, and it was the favorite resort of people who had, who had tuberculosis. Really? Uh, because of the, the atmosphere. And even had its own uh, English magazine. Another Colorado attraction was the cattle business, and there were a lot of British uh, that saw the economics of cattle raising as being irresistible. And the herds, uh, uh, you know, could graze at no cost on public lands that had grass growing, you know, everywhere. So this was amazing to them because back in England, you know, you had small plots of ground that had to be rented or owned. So many of those people that you're talking about, the Brits, they went to Wyoming and started some big ranches. Uh, yeah, yeah, there yeah. were a lot of ranches. So, you know, as this kind of news reached Britain, it uh, kind of pricked up the ears of small farmers as well as the lords of great estates. And the farmers were attracted by reports that a single cowboy could handle a thousand head of steers all by himself. Now, that might have been a little exaggeration. Uh, slightly. Yeah. Uh, but the big stock raisers, already alarmed by the influx of cheap American beef, decided that it was wiser to join the Westerners than to compete with them. So they sent their sons to the high plains, and we've talked about that a little bit, about the British sons that came over. And oh, yeah, they were dandies. Inter- interesting uh, young men. Some of them really got a hold of it and did yeah. good. But uh, some were... Uh, not so good. Yeah. So, But, you know, they had plenty of money. Uh, so many young Englishmen took up ranching in Colorado during the 1870s that, according to a British visitor, uh, they accounted for almost one cattle spread out of every three. Mm-hmm. Now, I didn't think they were that big in the cattle industry, but evidently they were. Weren't they the ones that brought the Herefords over here? Well, uh, Herefords, uh, uh, Guernsey, and Jersey yeah. uh, are islands just off the British coast. Yeah. So those, uh, of course, are d- dairy cows. But, but the yeah, Hereford itself, I think they were the ones that introduced 
Maybe I'm wrong. The first no. Hereford bull to come into this country, the Inner Mountain yeah, West. Well, there's an area in England uh, that's called Hereford. Yeah, Hereford. Hereford, yeah. yeah. So, but when the typical class-conscious English gentleman settled down to ranching, he was immediately given a lesson in the etiquette of Western life. Oh, here we go. Cowboys, he learned, were rugged individuals who considered no man their master. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, you know, a, a cowboy's not just going to take having a guy that uh, is kind of uppity up. and. In other words, they wouldn't let someone tell them what to do. Exactly. They might suggest. Yeah. <laughs> Meekly. Yes. But English cattlemen were quick to give the ranchers, the ranch hands, the respect they demanded. Uh, they talked about the cowboy. He said, quote, he is in the main a loyal, long-enduring, hardworking fellow, grit to the backbone, and tough as whipcord. So they did respect the, the cowboy as a hardworking Can individual. Can you imagine, though, the, these old cowboys with a five-day stubble beard and, and tough as bark on a tree, and somebody comes up and says, pip, pip, cheerio, old boy. <laughs> uh, you know, they probably had to just roll their eyes and say, <laughs> yeah, oh okay, here we sakes. go. What do you want me to do? Yeah, really. But, uh, you know, there was, uh, like say, a, a bit of... Uh, what was she? Snobbery yeah. involved. Yeah. Uh, there's a gal named Isabel Randall who arrived in the West as the bride of a British cattleman and uh, lived up in Montana and was initially very good to invite her American neighbors to her social functions. But she came to regret this generous gesture because her guest displayed the alarming habit of fraternizing with the household help. Mrs. Randall complained, quote, how can anyone keep servants in their place when the people whom we associate with invite them to their houses as equals? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so that probably didn't settle real good with the local ranchers' wives who were, you know, back then, uh, Everybody got together and yeah. helped each other. You had barn raisings. Yeah. You had barbecues, quil- quilting all kinds of bees. Yeah. You, everybody got together to help each other out. And uh, the so-called help, you were the help. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so uh, interesting. That, but, but they were basically acting like their servants were slaves. In a way, yeah. yeah. But that comes from the British uh, atmosphere back years and years and years ago. Yeah. And But that soon changed. I mean, the British that came over here, you know, they acclimated to the Western way of life. And, I mean, my relatives came from England. and Our, our, our relatives, relatives yeah. came from England. Because you and I are related. That's right. Yours yeah. came from Germany. Mine yeah. came from England. Yeah. But they somehow they got in. Somewhere they got to ne- together a little bit. <laughs> they and, did. Yeah. But, you know, I suspect my relatives, they moved up into Wales, and they came across and settled over in the Grace, Idaho area. And they probably brought a little of that. A British attitude with them. Yeah. Well, you are kind of snobby. Well, just around you. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a minute left. I know. Well, we're pretty much done. Uh, you know, this was uh, an interesting time in the history of, of the Old West. And I don't think a lot of us think about the Europeans. How many of those families are still in the Inner Mountain West today. Oh, I'm going to guess there's thousands. Again, you there think- again, wouldn't it be neat to try to do some tracing and find out uh, if we could get a great-great-grandson or something? 
Yeah, somebody that uh, traces it back to even royalty oh, of some yeah, kind yeah. back in England. And uh, how did they manage to get here? And how did what they do when they got here? Yeah. So pip pip cheerio. And it's it's a uh, to me a fascinating part of the settling of the old west. Absolutely. So you're from Wales. Well, no, England. There's a little town in England called Bovey Tracy. My great-grandfather moved up into Wales when he was five and at age 11 went to work in a coal mine oh, yeah. in Wales at That's age right. 11. That's right. Thus the book. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Doctor History did it again and always very interesting every Tuesday right here. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Mail checks, invoices, documents, and everything you need to keep your business running. Get rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS. And with the mobile app, you can take care of mailing on the go. Make the same no-brainer decisions as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.